Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for attending today's briefing on a new report quantifying the investment requirements for America's multimodal uh, transportation system. ASHTO, APTA, and the Transportation Research Board have worked together to produce such reports in prior authorization cycles and are proud to do so again. I am Mark Gazzetti, the Vice President for Policy of the American Public Transportation Association, APTA. Today you will hear from the single two people closest to America's highway and public transportation needs, Bud Wright and Michael Malafi. Uh, Bud Wright is Executive Director of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, the organization we know as ASHTO. Uh, celebrating its 100-year, ASHTO is the long-standing national association for all of the state DOTs. Uh, Bud's background includes service as executive director of the Federal Highway Administration and other safety and finance uh, positions in FHWA. Uh, he became ASHTO's executive director in January uh, 2013. Uh, Michael Malanfi, my boss, uh, became president and CEO of APTA in 2011, he brought with him a strong public transportation background in both the operating side and the supplier side of the business. Uh, Michael ran the transit systems in Charlotte, North Carolina, Wichita, Kansas, Hamilton, Ohio, Laredo, uh, Texas. Immediately prior to coming to APTA, Michael served 10 years as vice president for the bus manufacturer MCI and coach industries where he was responsible for operations in the United States and Canada. Uh, now, uh, but I know that ASHTO is celebrating its 100th year. APTA's roots go back to 1882. So we create the internal combustion engine itself at APTA. Uh, I also want to acknowledge the great work and partnership of Carol Warner and her outstanding team at the Environmental Energy Study Institute. Uh, we thank them for their always exceptional uh, efforts with these briefings. Uh, Bud and Michael will each make presentations uh, and we will then take uh, questions and answers uh, following that. And uh, Bud, you are first. Mark, thank you very much. And um, we'll take the young up in the cover of the line. We're proud of that. Thanks everybody for coming out today. Uh, I know it's not a great weather day outside, but I guess we can be thankful that the weather is liquid rather than frozen today. Uh, Michael and I have some important information to share with you this afternoon about the ongoing underinvestment in roads, bridges, and transit infrastructure in this country. The new bottom line report prepared for action in the American Public Transportation Association makes a strong case that just shoring up the highway trust fund to maintain current levels will not make much of a difference in the needed transportation investment that will improve economic performance and America's quality of life. It shows that a flat level federal program will not keep pace with rising levels of vehicle miles traveled on the highways or with the growing demands for public transportation services, much less close the investment gap that already exists. So what is the bottom line report? ASHNO and ACTA wanted to develop a resource that would be the most comprehensive analysis of the nation's service transportation investment needs. The bottom line report previously published in 2002 and 2009 is based on the forecasting models and data systems used by the Federal Highway Administration and Federal Transit Administration, and on results of Federal Highway Administration analyses supplemented by additional research. 
What are the key findings of the bottom line report? Currently, governments at all levels are investing about $105 billion annually in capital improvements to the U.S. highway and transit networks. But they need to spend $59 billion more each year to improve the transportation system and keep up with rising demand. Just for highways and bridges, we need $740 billion over the next six years, roughly $120 billion a year. But the investment currently by all levels of government is about $88 billion. That's more than a $30 billion gap that grows each year. For transit, we need to be spending $43 billion annually to improve system performance, but annual capital spending is much less, just $17.1 billion a year. So what are the ramifications of all that? Obviously, this report points out the massive challenge that faces the United States Congress and every unit of government in the United States. When we think of the federal contribution to capital projects, we often overlook the separate operating costs that state DOTs and local agencies face, from patching potholes and running snowplows to paying worker salaries. Total operating and capital spending by governments on highways is about $156 billion a year. The federal share is only about one-fourth of that amount, leaving the remainder to states, cities, counties, and increasingly the private sector to pick up the rest. And states are stepping up and investing more. Just in the last month, Iowa and North Dakota substantially increased their transportation investment. Meanwhile, states as diverse as Wisconsin, Texas, Washington, and Utah are all working on serious proposals to address pursued shortfalls in state-level investments. But state and local governments cannot do it alone. There has to be a federal program, there has to be a national vision guiding the transportation investment that occurs in this country. And that's why it's so important for the Congress to act and to act now. I hope that everybody in this room knows that the current federal uh, social transportation authorization legislation expires on May 31st, less than three months from now. And yet we don't have a plan on the table for how to deal with that, how to find the revenues necessary to make the investment that's necessary at the federal government level. Let's take a short moment and watch a video uh, that I think really makes the case for why we need to make the hard choices now. This is something that we put together in conjunction with an infographic that actually Same spirit as long. 
business owners have to rely on a free network in danger of not delivering. Commuters spend hundreds of extra hours sitting in their cars, either because of congested roadways or because they don't have viable public transportation options. Family vacations are detoured by unsafe bridges, where workers are stuck choosing jobs based on distance rather than opportunity. What if our system could keep up with more of a front in the line with the realities of 2015 and beyond? Skilled workers wouldn't have to move away to find better jobs. We could get better access to our abundant natural resources and agricultural products. We could again climb the ranks in competitiveness. Every dollar invested in highways or transit returns two to three times that amount to the economy. Look at investment infrastructure. Let's look at this first chart here. 
This chart display show, on display here shows the current annual capital funding that's not sufficient to cover the ongoing asset replacement need. The FDA recently determined that the standard of repair backlog alone is $88 billion. That's not ongoing operations, that's not expansion, that's just standard of repair ongoing backlog. So the study looked at a variety of different growth scenarios and chose the mid-level assumption as the basis for the investment requirements. Our infrastructure is the product of an intergovernmental partnership with federal, state, local, and passenger fares all combining together to fund our nation's public transportation system. It truly takes a collaboration of many parties to make this happen. May 31, May 20, or MAP 21 is going to expire, and obviously we need to renew that. We need to have a consistent stream of funding going forward. We must have something that we can depend on, that we can make long-range plans on so that we can build our nation's highways, bridges, and public transportation in a smart, efficient, effective, dependable way. Lurching month-to-month, quarter-by-quarter with short-term extensions isn't going to create the strongest and best transportation system in the world. We have to do this together in a collaborative, long-term way. It provides access for jobs, for mobility in our communities, for transportation and travel choices. We have to have all of this together. So let's look at some 20-year trends. We talked about the highest ridership in 20 years, or 58 years. Let's look at some growth rates. Since 1995, the population of this country has grown 21%. Identified now 21% growth rate in population. BMT, vehicle miles travel, the metric we often use for how many people are driving, has grown about 25%. So, fairly parallel past population growth and BMT growth. And at the same period of time, you see the blue line on the top there, that's public transit growth. They grew up 39% in that same time period. So, 21% population growth, 39% public transit growth. The high number we saw last year wasn't just an anomaly, it wasn't a result of spiking gas prices. In fact, in the fourth quarter last year, gas prices dropped 43 cents a gallon. We saw almost an increase in ridership across the country. We are seeing a change on people who move out of our country, how they access public transportation, how they're growing and building our communities. We've done a couple of studies here recently that uh, help support the data we're seeing here. The first is an economic study. And here's what we looked at how do we quantify the benefits of putting in new infrastructure. Why do we build infrastructure? We don't build it just to create hard hat, yellow vest jobs, we do it to make something better. So in an economic study, we looked at, typically, we create uh, our hard hat jobs are about 21,000 jobs for every $1 billion investment. When you look at the better, we measure the better, we come up with over 50,000 jobs that are created or sustained as a result of each billion dollar investment in our nation's public transportation infrastructure. Bringing these numbers together creates real jobs, and creates not just the jobs that build the things, but create the jobs that make our economy stronger, make our country stronger, and as Bud so eloquently pointed out, creates better global competitiveness for our nation. And there's several trends that we're seeing that are driving some of these things. Certainly, one of the metrics that's also important is that one dollar public transportation Slideshow between two and three in the public transit space, we see it as high as four times return on investment with those dollars. And two things to drive in as we look at the uh, both ends of the geological spectrum, the millennials are coming in the marketplace in a big way. 
We did a recent study looking at the travel patterns of millennials. We found that 70% of them prefer to live in a community that gives them transportation choices. When we grew up as kids, we had a binary choice. We could either take a car or you took transit. It's one of the two, that's what you did. And we look now, there's a wide variety. You take a bus, a train, you share this car, share this bike, all these different things within a week. We're changing how we move about our communities. And because of this change, we're seeing how we also use our systems differently. So it hasn't been having fold out schedules that were hard to read, especially on rainy days like today. Information is on our smartphones. And we're equipping our buses and trains with 3G, 4G, smart technology. We know where the vehicles are going to be. We can even pay for our fares with our phones in many cities now. And it's giving us greater access to our communities and changing how we live and how we build our urban environment. And with that, we need a seamless transportation that supports it. It's not just about infrastructure for the roads, bridges, highways, and transit. It's not just for the businesses. It's how we build our residential infrastructure as well and how that's impacted by transportation choices. We did a study with the National Association of Realtors and we found in the time from 2008 to 2013, during the toughest economic recession of our lifetime, we studied a number of cities across the country, new and old, from Phoenix to Boston, oldest transit system in the country, one of the newest. We looked at housing, residential housing stock along high-frequency rail transit corridors, and we found that that housing stock was 42% more resilient. What does that mean? It means as prices dropped out from under the economy and around housing, those prices dropped less. And as the economy came back, they came back quicker. What we found was that residential housing stock along high-frequency transit corridors was as valuable as oceanfront property. And if you had rail, oceanfront property, you were in California, you were loving because you everything that was right. So why do we have these other reports and numbers? Because it all supports these different messages. It isn't just this report here, the bottom line report saying alone that these numbers are real, these things are happening. As we look from multiple angles, all these pieces, they support these numbers are very real, these needs for our country are very real. So what does it take? What happens when we build our infrastructure? Public transit is a $61 billion a year industry. 400,000 people employed in our industry. And here's a really neat stat. We talk about the efficiency of government funding. People say, oh, should we devolve this to the state? Should we do it where we can do it more efficiently and effectively? But what really are the investments of the federal government and other government partners? They're really capital funding. The federal government doesn't build a rolling stock. They don't build our buses, trains, and shelters, and our transit centers. The private sector does. So when we analyze these government dollars coming into our business, fully 73% of the government dollars that are flowing into the public transit space are going right through to the private sector. They're creating jobs all across the country. When we build rail cars for New York, from Miami to Los Angeles, we're creating jobs all across the nation in places like Lincoln, Nebraska, buses in Anniston, Alabama, Pema, North Dakota, for trains in Boise, Idaho. We're creating good-paying, high-technical jobs all across the country. An investment in public transportation in the nation's total transportation system creates jobs in a vibrant economy all across this country. It stretches border to border. As we look at the changing way we fund and finance our programs, it's not just about government funding, it's also about financing programs. We're seeing, of course, talk of RIF loans and TIFI loans, but also public-private partnerships. But those that play in the PPP space, as we found in a recent meeting we had at the Treasury Department, which was supported by 
Secretary Fox, Secretary Pritzker, and Secretary Liu. We talked about how those that invest in the private sector play on a global scale. They look where are the best places around the world to invest their private sector dollars to build infrastructure. They like infrastructure. You can have good revenue streams or hard assets. There's a good government purpose to them. When we look at our country's patchwork of 50 different states and PPP rules that some allow, some prohibit, some do, some don't, and uncertain federal infrastructure investment, it raises the risk quotient for PPP investment. It makes us a more risky investment. There's an aversion to invest in those PPP dollars in our country when we look at us in comparison to places like our neighbors in the north of Canada or our friends in Australia that have more reliable dependable funding and more standardized local funding models at the state or provincial levels. If we want to play in this world, if we want to bring this innovative financing, we have to look at policy as well as long-term funding and bring the package together. So some might suggest that by getting all players and governments to work together and passing a long-term bill is too high for a lot of supply. However, we look back at the history of the presidential administrations, our Congresses, and the enacted bills, it's important to take some lessons from that. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan, with the majority Democratic House and the majority Republican Senate, worked together to raise the federal gas tax from four cents to nine cents. He called that program a nickel for America. Four cents for roads, bridges, and highways, one cent for transit. That's the origin of the 80-20 split. We've supported that ever since. This discussion that there's been a diversion of highway funds and the transit is simply not true. We've been ever since we are today in a partnership looking at it as a holistic system. Dedicated funds for road bridges and highways, dedicated funds for transit coming out of this user fee-based system. It isn't just that it happened back in 83 with Reagan. Look at 91 with President George H.W. Bush during a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. They worked together to increase the federal gas tax from 9 to 14.1 cents. As well to President Clinton in Congress, the last gas tax increase more than 20 years ago in 1993. Democratic President, Democratic majority in both houses, tax was raised from 14.1 to the current 18.4 cents. So I believe I predict that the current, in the current economic model, we can get this done. We must get this done. Our nation is counting on us to invest in what is truly a nonpartisan, bipartisan, bicameral investment in our country. Our nation's infrastructure needs this. America needs this. We need to invest in infrastructure. And this report clearly quantifies the data we need to support this important investment in our country. Thank you very much. We stand ready for questions. that 
things are expected to achieve certain outcomes and there's been flexibility to achieve those outcomes. So certainly one of the things that we have been emphasizing in our uh, discussions with Congress and his task is that that flexibility is important. Creating additional new programs and categories lots of funding make it more difficult to achieve those kinds of performance-based outcomes. Um, so while I don't see uh, any of the I'll call them broad eligibilities disappearing, and certainly there may be some tinkering with the program descriptions and such, so I have to go forward in that point of the conversation. As we've looked at, it's a great question, as we've looked at local transit tax initiatives across the country, we've been tracking them since 2000. We've seen a better than 70% passage rate uh, on average. We had 69% passage rate, or 71% passage rate last year with 49 of 61 local initiatives passed. When we look at why these local initiatives passing and there's a harder hill to climb at the federal level, it has to do with accountability. And so as Buck touched on, Map 21 is still obviously many, many rules that have to be promulgated that have yet to come out of the 27-month bill. Among those are performance-based metrics. And having those allows us to have more accountability, more transparency in the federal program. So we're not just saying we're going to do good, we're going to do better. We can actually measure those things and demonstrate that. I think that's a key piece. Obviously, another thing we're looking for that's coming out of Map 21 is the FTA, for the very first time, is becoming a regulatory agency and having a, a wide and broad uh, mandate on safety and security of this nation's public transportation systems. So we look forward to those things coming out. I think as we talk with Congress, we see this next bill being less about major policy changes. A lot of those policy changes are truly captured in Map 21, although it's 27 months in bill, as we know, it's about 60 months worth of policy. So we look forward to those things coming out and matching them with the proper funding so we can have a good long-term implementation of a very good, robust, and flexible program for our country going forward. So these Map 21 performance metrics, those were included in Map 21 and you want to see them kept? You want to see those performance metrics kept from Map 21 into the legislation? Well, that was one of the things that was a key component of that. And it was, uh, it was looking at your assets and grading your assets, looking at that true state of good repair. It's one thing for us to say we have a state of good repair need. It's another to be able to measure that and have national standards for that. National standards are very important. Investment in our research, our technology, and our standards programs are critical. Why so they can come back to this so we can have accountability, so we can be accountable to the citizens of this country and having that data is important. So those are some of the many things that we're still waiting to be fully rolled out, waiting for the AMPRMs and NPRMs and the rules and we expect that will be helpful for us moving forward. <coughs> Great question, thank you. Gentlemen, thank you for your uh, time and for the presentation. Very compelling. Um, uh, on the funding side of things, uh, VMT per capita in this country has been on its way down since 2004. Total VMT since the beginning of the Great Recession. It's the definite trend, and you mentioned what's going on with millennials. We also have CAFE standards increasing dramatically over the next several years. So long story short, consumption of gasoline is on a downward trajectory. From the revenue side, are there any policy recommendations that you are making beyond raising the gap, retail gas tax, if that even is a policy recommendation? Um, and if so, from the advocate's perspective, how do we participate in those discussions when we're back in the district? Um, well, first of all, uh, on the BMT issue, uh, there isn't any question that in this recent period of time that there has been some reduction in BMT per capita, 
described with regard to the reliability of the federal gasoline tax or gas taxes at state level are definitely true. And one of the reasons why uh, you know, there is a lot of discussion about looking at different approaches for funding transportation in the future, whether they be mileage issues or fees or other approaches. But we're not ready for that now. I mean, the technology is there. We're certainly um, doing some experimentation. There are pilots in various states looking at mileage issues or fees. Right now, I think many would say that the gasoline tax, if it were to be continued or increased, has the capacity to carry us forward, certainly through the next reauthorization period, if not beyond. Uh, for the longer term, uh, I'm absolutely agree with you that we have to look at other solutions. Now, all of that said, um, back in December, I would have suggested that there may be some momentum gathering that uh, gasoline tax or user-based approach is the most likely outcome with regard to how the Congress might choose to fund transportation investment. But much of that enthusiasm seems to have died out as we turn the page of the uh, Congress and, uh, into 2015. And the approaches that the Congress uh, seem to be more uh, considering now are ones that are not directly related to transportation, but are ways in which to create additional revenues through the general fund to support transportation investment. Um, I will say that we have been um, relatively agnostic on that uh, issue. Uh, what we are looking for is something that is long-term and sustainable, uh, and you know, we're not going to frankly be thinking about what solution the Congress comes up with, but uh, making sure that a solution is derived and that can give us some certainty, that can enable uh, states and local governments and transit entities to be able to plan their projects as long as possible into the future, I think is one of the key elements that we're all looking for. I think actually we had a chart in uh, my presentation that Substantially exactly what uh, what I talked about. There continues to be we showed a 25 percent increase in uh, VMT over that uh, 95 to uh, 2015 time frame. around there. Uh, we of course support any and all revenue streams, and we're grateful to take all the dollars you bring. This and our, our primary job here is to substantiate the need. No question, we have to do that. Now certainly, Apple is on record supporting gas tax increase. Let's say user-based fee. And uh, the more that we can show a user-based fee in a correlation of how we operate and fund our program study, the easier it is for the public to understand that. We look at what we have a gap. The, the trust fund runs out May 31. We have a tremendous gap that we've got to fill there. And what are options that can fill that quickly? What are options that can uh, not have to borrow uh, against the general fund? What are options that can be created without creating bureaucracy for small government? Certainly using an increase in the user-based speed makes some sense and matches both the uh, you know, values of both sides of the, of the House and the Senate. By having a small government-based program that's very efficient, it's only collected a thousand refineries in other countries, an option. But there are many, many options out there. Certainly, have to take a very agnostic position as well. We're willing to work with all different options and to see what can best fund the program. The, the, the key here is we need a long-term, well-funded bill. Now, if we continue, Past six years, fantastic, but in the middle, we need good, well funded six year growth. I'm Tony DeSantis from Delaware Valley Association of Rail Passengers in Philadelphia. Uh, you mentioned that an increase in the gasoline tax could carry us through the next authorization. I'm wondering how much of a gasoline tax do you want, and how much of a gasoline tax realistically can we expect from this Congress? Well, um, I won't uh, answer the question of how much we want because 
industry skyway corridors, those that benefit if they can help fund the ongoing operations and maintenance, that would be a great paradigm for us to look at. Kind of the way that the New York Central and Pennsylvania Railroad and all the rest of those railroads also built their empires because they not only built the tracks but they also owned the land. Uh, that is a good point. I was thinking more that the governmental investment would come back in the way of sparking economic activity and, uh, and bringing additional funds to the, to the Treasury. But all, all those points were certainly good. Uh, additional questions? I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about devolution, specifically you're talking about a favorable environment for local tax initiatives. We see you know, areas that are miles ahead in terms of pavement condition, Orange County is an example because that's where I'm actually from previously. Um, why not put the energy into, you know, into devolution as is that bottom topic here? First, as I'm sure you could point out, the freeze-thaw cycles on the roadway network in Orange County isn't particularly rough. Um, Orange County, California, or Florida, for that matter. Uh, look, this is a national program with national significance and national implications. It takes a partnership. The local governments play a role. The passengers pay a role. They pay their fare every time they get on, the, on their bus or train. States, in most cases, play a role, and the federal government plays a role. This is a national system. Let us not be fooled by this notion that, oh, we could take the 2.86 cents or even the 18 cents of the gas tax and just raise the state gas taxes 18 cents. It doesn't work that way. One, we've got a major infusion of money from the general fund right now. Second, all different states have different levels. You could see 30, 40, 50 cent gas, increase, gas tax increases in individual states. That's untenable. This is a national program of national significance. There is a reason it was set up this way. It is to create national partnership. Devolution does not make our country stronger. It's not how we build a great national economy. Yeah, let me just say, uh, very simply, devolution won't work, doesn't work. Um, that federal validation is critical, and uh, Mike is absolutely right that the amount necessary to increase the Actuary or whatever other revenue source the state might use uh, would be so significant in some states as to be impossible to achieve. And when that becomes the case, then the nature of a national program, one that has an interconnected system, disappears. Uh, and that's why we have a federal program. I mean, there are many members of the Congress who point back to the Constitution as the foundation for why we invest in transportation. That's very legitimate. It started with the ability to move commerce across uh, state borders. Uh, and that really continues to be the foundation of that interconnected network. And with that issue, um, you lose the possibility of achieving that over the long term. I just want to add one more point on that. It used to be that we had a very strong federal piece there, and the challenge had been would the locals step up to bring up their match. What we've seen now is the locals, communities have found they appreciate the investment infrastructure. They get it, they understand it, they trust the local operators to do good things, whether building roads, highways, transit, you get it. They said, we want to invest in our communities to make them better. We want to have a competitive community, so we'll tax ourselves to do that. But in partnership, we've stepped up. The local level, you federal government also stepped up and do us a partnership. So I think it's less about a devolution to the local level, more about the states and localities that have made a stronger partner. We're looking for the federal government to continue to do 
came to our workshop for topics. Uh, another funding proposal, if you can uh, maybe weigh in, uh, congressional leaders um, are telling people that uh, highway funding and transportation funding should be made part of an overall tax reform package. Uh, could you, you know, just share your thoughts about that? And also, uh, can you speak a little bit about the administration's, you know, what we briefly have so far under the New Grow America Act and their funding proposal there? Now it takes a little bit of time to put those things together to build with coalitions. 
And you know, it is tough in the current environment to have a partisan bicameral agreement. We've seen it, it was done with the water bill last year, another transportation related bill, and we see the opportunities for this. We saw certainly the uh, Amtrak rail bill in front of the House with the bipartisan support. Transportation <coughs> knows no party, knows no district, it's everywhere. And we think there's truly an opportunity for that to go forward. It takes time. The information's there. We see the Congress continuing to keep this as a top five issue across the nation, across their discussions. And we truly believe there will be a long-term goal. Last call for last call for questions. Okay, I, I want to uh, remind everyone that the session has been recorded. You can check it out again on the.